Yeah, I was I was just dabbling in everything. I wanted to meet lots of different people. I didn't want to be stuck in the dance bubble. I needed things outside of that. I think that that's really healthy to uh, diversify the type of people that you're interacting with and break out of just that insular world of ballet. There's there's more to life than that. That's Christina Bargelt. I'm Greg Baird. You're listening to the Photo Gregor Podcast. Welcome back to the Photo Gregor Podcast. This is one of those stories that I wanted to tell since I decided to start podcasting. Um, it's a compelling story. Uh, it's a little rougher to listen to. There's some serious things, uh, trigger warning for sexual assault and a little bit about eating disorders as well. By way of note, this episode was recorded before the election. There's a, a, there's nothing political in here, but it is uh, something that gets mentioned as if it's a future thing. And it was obviously recorded before that. And so I've brought Christina on the program to talk about her experience. And it's it's all of our responsibility to make sure that we're protecting each other. I feel a responsibility to, to help Christina share this story. I want her experience to be something that aids other people. And I'm really frustrated and saddened that she went through it. But I'm glad she's here today. Welcome to the show, Christina. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, I'm excited to talk to you. You're one of the people I admire. I've told you that before. And the reason we're talking today is because I do admire you and I kind of want to tell your story and uh, fair warning to anybody out there. Some of her story involves some pretty dark things. So trigger warning, if, uh, if you need to not listen to this one, it involves um, sexual assault and other personal struggles that Christina's gone through. So you've been warned, Christina, is that, is that true? Are there other trigger warnings we need to issue? Um, probably one for eating disorders. Okay. So, um, also that, uh, so be warned, Christina is an amazing girl and I don't want to sugarcoat anything. That's part of her story, but that's also part of why I think she's pretty admirable. Um, so I hope you feel that way as well. Christina, why don't you tell us about um, growing up? I mean, you you majored, I know in college you majored in music as a minor and in dance as a major. Why music and dance? I mean, what what about the two art forms makes you just happy? Um, well, so I was born in Denver, Colorado, and that's currently where I reside. Um. And I was just always really attracted to music and dance. I loved the arts ever since I was really little. Um, and I remember <laughs> I still have it on the side of my bed in my childhood room. And I put it up in any room that I have that's not my childhood room. I got these little like glow in the dark stars stickers and I put them on my wall. Um, to remind myself that I was a star. This is like two-year-old Christina. <laughs> and so now to still remind myself of that, I do that. I did that in like my college dorms rooms and stuff like that. So what does that mean? So you're you're a just, star. What does that mean? 
Um, I guess I just always knew that I was going to be a performer in some way or another. And so I just needed a reminder on my wall, I guess. And then it just kind of became a nostalgic thing. So it's kind of goofy. <laughs> it's not goofy at all. I mean, we all have our thing. I, I used to put a, uh, I wanted to break the high school high jump record. So I used to put in my locker, I had a little sticker that I put up that said six foot eight inches because that was the high jump record. And I never got there, but that was the goal. You know, I want to break the high school high jump record. So I get it. It's it's totally cool. But how did you know at the age of two? The, I mean, you said that's pretty early age. How did you know you were going to be a, born to perform at that age? I don't know, really. I think I just had it in my head that performing was the greatest thing. Um, none of my family members really are artists of any kind, except for my grandmother, who's now deceased. Um, she studied piano at Juilliard and always had a great appreciation for the arts, loved ballet, actually palled around with Howard Gilman quite a bit, who was the large benefactor of ballet back when it was really booming, was the main supporter for Barishnikov to defect and come to the U.S. Um, and a few other dancers. Okay, so it runs in your family then? A little bit. Do your parents perform? No, not at all. They don't understand it one little bit. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, let, tell me, I want to get into dance. I met you through dance photography, obviously, but uh, what instrument do you play? Um, what, what are your favorite, favorite types of tunes to play? What do you like? Um, so I started with the violin when I was five and a half. I started asking when I was around five and my parents wanted to make sure I wasn't being fickle. So they made me listen to violin music for a good six months. And what finally broke them was I made this uh, violin very accurate or as accurate as you could be for five um, out of paper and scotch tape. I was a big believer in scotch tape at that age. I thought it could do no wrong. You could fix anything with scotch tape. Exactly right. <laughs> and so I made this replica of a violin complete with a bow. And they were like, okay, she's serious. Um, so that's when I got to start. And I was trained in the Suzuki method. And then I... Um, the Suzuki method, that's the one without she music to start, right? Okay, so Dr. Suzuki was this lovely Japanese man, and he created a variety of different um, curriculum for different classical instruments, voices included. Um, and what I love about his methodology so much now as a teacher and kind of looking at it more from a methodology standpoint is he collected um, different simple pieces or pieces that matched the level of the student um, in a particular key. So he, you know, started with simpler music in book one in the same key, easy for little violin students to learn and other students as well. Presumably, I just can speak mostly to the violin and viola um, methods. So they didn't have to learn any new finger patterns. I found with a lot of other um, book sets and different curriculum created, 
they have to learn a lot of different finger patterns right away to deal with the sharps and flats. And that's really confusing when you're just starting out when you're little. Um, so I really appreciate that about his methodology and just the discipline that he brings about the idea that learning an instrument is supposed to kind of be a family endeavor or an endeavor between the student, the teacher, and the parent. And there's kind of like this three-way support going. Um, and oh my goodness, did my mom and I used to fight <laughs> over me practicing that violin. My One of my first violins had like the finish on the violin was coming off because I cried on it so much. Because <laughs> I just didn't want to practice and we would just scream at each other. But that's kind of the relationship there, which is just a little bit contentious. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, but I stuck with it. And then when I was 12, I learned the viola. I kind of self-taught um, because I was joining orchestra and I obviously had been playing for quite a while at that point. And so I needed something new to occupy and everybody needs violists. So that's kind of how that came about. And then in college, I auditioned for the minor for both uh, voice and violin. So I actually did a decent amount of singing when I was younger. Um, but I ended up sticking through with the violin. It just worked a little bit better with my schedule to get all the credits and things that I needed. Um, and on occasion at college, I would play in the viola section when they needed a violist, but I would still get credit for my violin minor. So that they were very generous and they really worked with my ballet schedule, which I appreciated so much. Well, that's good. I, I, uh, I personally love music as well. I, I performed in college also, and, and I have a love of everything performance and everything music. It's, it's very fulfilling. What, what kind of pieces do you like to play? What, what, uh, if you need to relax or take some stress off, or even maybe if you're angry, what, what kind of things do you play on your, on your instruments when, uh, when you need to feel an emotion or calm down or whatever? Mostly just the classics things out of Suzuki. And then once I got old enough, I started branching out a little bit to big classical concertos, Mozart and stuff like that. Um, so I have a lot to pull from and I, you know, I think it's kind of interesting how a lot of artists, Maybe ballet is their main art form, but they always kind of have an, a different artistic release. And I really relate to that. I think when one art form becomes your job, you kind of need another to have a artistic release from your artistic release. Sure. sure. <laughs> um, so what, let's talk about ballet. When, when did you start studying ballet then? Cause you obviously you studied music from a, quite a young age and voice. I didn't know that that's new for me. Um, but we'll talk about that another day. When did you start studying ballet? I started taking ballet classes when I was three. And, you know, it wasn't really ballet, ballet in the traditional sense. When you're that little, you can't really learn, nor is it suggested that someone should try and teach you that. It's more um, expressing yourself through movement, learning high shapes, low shapes. Frankly, it's just running the children until they're tired and then return them to the parents. Um, but I really enjoyed that. I thought the big girls in point shoes were just the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. Um, and then I kind of in my, before I turned double digits, kind of that eight to 10 area, maybe a little bit after I was really focused on other things, uh, violin being one of them. And then at eight, I was accepted into the Colorado children's crowd, which is a very 
prestigious uh, touring children's choir based out of Denver, and they do they they bring you up through the program over the course of seven years, four different levels of choirs, um, performing in all the best performance venues in Denver, and then uh, every other year their international tour choir tours to an international venue. So I toured to Canada, um, but they've been all over the world, China, South Africa, Mm. Italy, France, Spain, you name it, they've been there. And this choir has uh, boys and girls or? or... Yes, it's mixed. Okay. And what part did you sing? Uh, I started out as a soprano and then uh, a horrible, tragic day happened when they retested some of our voices because they would test each one of us individually and then place us in our sections. And as you advance through the choirs, there became more and more sections um, because we would sing, you know, choral pieces that sometimes had eight to 12 parts yeah. in it. So there were a lot of different specifications, but when I started out, I was a soprano and I loved it. I got the melody a lot and that was my vibe. It was a main character vibe and I loved it. And then (laughs) (laughs) I think it was my second year. They retested us mid year and I switched to alto and I was devastated. Let me tell you, there was a fiery journal entry about that. (laughs) Why? I I love the harmony parts. What, what is it about alto that doesn't jive with you? I think that, you know, I had made friends in the soprano section and I, I just liked it. I don't think that it was anything against altos or harmonies. I think I just didn't like the change and was insulted. Therefore, I couldn't, you know, I was a little kid. I couldn't see past my personal feelings on it to understand the benefit and that they were trying to do what was best for my voice. So then I stayed in alto for the rest of my time. And then once I got into high school and started doing the um, specialty choirs through my um, high school, I went back to soprano and was like super high soprano. <laughs> so I've, I've done it all. I've oscillated back and forth. Okay, cool. I, I love choral music. We could, like I said, we could talk about that all day. Um, let's get back to ballet. How did you get into the, um, to, you were in the university ballet master of fine arts or sorry, uh, bachelor of fine arts program. Is that correct? Yes. So, well, it was actually because, uh, corral ended, you, uh, can no longer be in the Colorado children's corral after middle school. So when I was Oh, cause you're not a child, you don't count as a child when you get that old right i guess not well and a lot of the boys tend to voice out as we called it um when they would hit puberty and their voice would change they could no longer be in corral we had they now have like high school programs which i think is really neat um to continue to train singers even after their voice changes um so but but when corral ended i was you know not rehearsing singing all the time or doing violin rehearsals for the various orchestras and programs that I was interested there. So I had a lot more free time. And that's when I kind of started noticing ballet's role in my life. And I was like, oh, 
this is really hard. And I enjoyed the challenge so much. And it just kind of took over and took off. And that's what I ended up wanting to pursue. Um, so in high school, I went to a very um, intense college preparatory private um, high school. It's called Colorado Academy. They do pre-K through 12. And I uh, tested into the school for seventh grade onwards. So I had all this time and I had to do an athletic credit. And at that time, uh, ballet could count as an outside athletic credit. You kind of had to do all this paperwork and arrange it. And yeah, it better. Then they, and they would, um, well, it doesn't anymore. That's kind of complicated, but we don't have to get into that whole controversy. Yeah. yeah um, we don't talk about that, right? That's right. Uh, <laughs> But at that time, I was able to get a grade from my ballet teachers and pursue athletics through ballet. So um, I did that all through high school. And then I was looking into both college programs and companies. And my parents were pretty adamant that I went to college. So when I got into the U, I kind of stopped auditioning other places um in terms of colleges because I felt like it was the right fit you know it was far enough away from family but still midwest slash west coast depending on your definition of that <laughs> geographical right you know section of the country um so it was it was just the right fit um still a you know mountain town obviously that's important as a Coloradan, love the mountains. Um, so it just kind of had everything that I was looking for. So when you arrived on campus, what, I mean, like, uh, it's a whole new world. You're away from home the first time. What, what kind of things did you, what kind of things interested you about the area, um, about living in, in Salt Lake City? Well, I had actually been to the Ballet West Summer Intensive in 2013. So I, you know, gotten a taste of University of Utah. Um, I love the scenery there, except for when the inversion prevents you from seeing it. Um, but I love, you know, the mountains being so close by and just kind of being on the side of that hill and being able to see out into everything is it's so beautiful. I, I do miss, you know, driving around Salt Lake. I love the avenues. I think that neighborhood is just breathtaking. Yeah, I just I I do miss the scenery part for sure. Yeah, I, I imagine it's it's hard to move away from that. However, Denver's not too bad for scenery either, so you're you're good. No, it's not. It's just different. I think Salt Lake still has that small town feel, even though it isn't that small, um, or a small city. Whereas Denver is just it's you know built out a lot, and it's just kind of one straight city through all the suburbs. Um, so I liked that about Utah that it had a little bit more Salt Lake had a little bit more intimacy to it. It was a smaller city um, and just really beautiful. And so what kind of things did you involve yourself in? Uh, obviously, you're in school, you're doing ballet, you're minoring in music. What uh, what other things uh, were you interested in as like campus life type stuff? So I was really adamant that if I was going to do the whole college university dance route that I needed to um, make sure that I was well-rounded. 
I didn't want to hide in the dance building for four years of my life. I wanted to experience college. So I was like, I'm here. We're doing it. So let's do it full out. Let's invest. Let's be, you know, outgoing and meet people and have the full college experience. So right away, I got involved with uh, student government and I was in ASUU for all four years in various different roles. Um, and for three out of the four years that I was involved in student government, the university actually paid me and a little portion of my tuition to do the work that I did for the student government. So that is something that is so generous of them. I think it's a great opportunity for students. So youths out there listening, get involved. Um, and then I also went through formal sorority recruitment and joined Kappa Kappa Gamma, which has played a huge role in my life. I'm still very active with the organization, even now as an alumna. Um, and then I was doing my music stuff and doing my dance stuff. So a busy schedule all the way around. Yeah, I was, I was just dabbling in everything. I wanted to meet lots of different people. I didn't want to be stuck in the dance bubble. I needed things outside of that. I think that that's really healthy to uh, diversify the type of people that you're interacting with. Um, and break out of just that insular world of ballet there's there's more to life than that and that, that doesn't mean that ballet wasn't a priority for me because absolutely it was but and it still is but it's important to expose yourself while you're in the environment where all of those things are readily available to you because that's not always going to be the case i learned that the really hard way graduating from college i think we spend so much time preparing students for college, but we don't spend enough time talking about what happens after and just a lot of opportunities pass you by. So I would recommend taking full advantage and exposing yourself to everything you might remotely be interested in in college. Yeah, go to go to a concert, go to sporting events, go see the things that a college allows you to see. Go to the go to the library and study once in a while too. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, when I left college, there were not as many opportunities to do the things, uh, to diversify your, 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 your hobbies, obviously. Um, it just doesn't happen. It's kind of like, uh, this new world where you're an adult and that's it. You're an adult. Right. And, you know, my parents were kind enough to help me out during college. So I didn't have to work full time. And I realized that that was an incredible gift and not everybody is able to do that. Um, but certainly after college, when, you know, the expectation is that you're supporting yourself financially, not only are there not as many opportunities, but you also don't really have the time because you got to eat. <laughs> yeah. Right. I kind of like, I kind of like that eating part, you know, college is a good place where you find out how do you pay for everything? It's not easy. So. No, it's not nice to have a scholarship, whether it comes from your parents or the school or or whatever activity you're doing or a mixture, you know, whatever works. Well, in that student government thing, I, I, I don't want to pass that by. That's a really cool thing that they, they allowed you to pay part of your tuition by using your student government. Um, I guess it's I guess it's a job. Well, they yes. Yeah, so they paid they give a little tuition break for that. And they in addition, they paid me. Okay. 
So it, it was totally great. I really, really enjoyed it. And I got exposure to a lot of different things. I was in what they call first year council, which is kind of the training ground for those freshmen. And then after that, that was a volunteer thing, which I was happy to do because I it really helped students get acquainted with ASUU. And then I joined um, the legislative branch. I ran for um, assembly representative. So that was uh, learning about finances for all these student organizations and approving those finances. And then because I was a student in the College of Fine Arts, that also gave me an opportunity to work on the Fine Arts Fund grant uh, process, approving grants. So it was really great exposure and I got paid and a tuition break. And then my senior year, uh, I became the first ever wellness chair, which was really exciting. They created the position for me and it still exists today. Um, and so that was kind of more the executive branch. So I had a lot of experiences within ASUU, um, as well as outside that were different. So it was, it was really neat. I super loved it. <laughs> yeah. And so I, man, there's so many things there. I want to, I, I could follow up on, but, uh, I want to say this to anybody who's listening, who's in college, find a way to get somebody else to pay for your school. That's, <laughs> that's the bottom line, whether you're 13 years old, you know, if you're 13 right now or 15 right now, get good grades, good grades, give scholarships, scholarships, pays for school, paying for it out of pocket is expensive. And so anyway, that's my, my, that's one of my passion projects is to make sure that everyone knows that getting somebody else to pay for it is a much easier route than uh than paying for it yourself or getting a huge loan so um <laughs> uh, i want to talk a little bit about um what happened christina and um sure and for those of you listening here's where the trigger warning sets in um i'm sure but uh christina why don't you walk us through what happened what were the circumstances and and uh what happened sure so the unfortunate part of my college experience which i think is true for an unfortunately large part of the population is that i did experience sexual assault multiple times while i was in college by multiple different perpetrators but i think the instance that made the most impact on my life is the one that I'd like to talk with you folks about and the one that I think Greg is referring to. Please do. So this was the end of May in 2017. I went to a house party that was hosted by some of my friends from Greek Life. And this is not at all to blame Greek life. I am the biggest supporter of Greek life you will ever meet. I still volunteer my time to support my Greek organization. So I think that's a really important disclaimer to put out there. And I would actually say that being part of a sorority and having that support was one of the most um, monumentally helpful things in going through this hard experience was to have that support system and uh, other women that I felt comfortable talking things through with. Um, so anyway, house party, I met this individual who is male identifying. Um, and we had kind of matched previously over social media. I think we matched on Tinder, like way back in the day when Tinder was not 
as interesting as it is now. I, I, I'm not really a Tinder girl anymore, but those days were different people. Uh, so we matched on Tinder a while before that. And then we follow each other on social media. And I actually remember him like messaging me over Instagram at the beginning of that summer being like, Hey, if you're in town, we should hang out. And I was like, uh, I don't know where I'm going to be for the summer. I hadn't decided if I was going to stay or leave yet. Um, one of the nice things about University of Utah for listeners that are unaware is you can apply to get in-state tuition if you're um, living there for a year and can kind of do these various things to prove that, get your driver's license in the state, register to vote in the state, it's, et cetera. Um, so that brings tuition down by quite a bit. I'm just here with all the helpful hints. Yeah, that's, that's another good, for your college. good hint for college. Uh, <laughs> yes. So something cool that the University of Utah does or state of Utah. Um, And then the other thing was because the ballet major is so intense and has an incredible amount of credit hours in order to earn your degree, second only to biology, I believe. um, It's common for dancers to stay the summer and get additional coursework done over the summer. I was also looking for eating disorder treatment at that time. So I was kind of a hot mess express. <laughs> and so I was going to stay in Utah so that I could focus on my schooling, have a consistent treatment plan with maybe one um, provider in that sense um, for my eating disorder. And that's, that's the route I took. So I went to this house party and he was there. And I was kind of like looking at him at the party. I'm like, I think I recognize that guy from somewhere. I don't. Um, I know that my sorority sisters and I had actually talked about him in passing because he's, um, you know, he's like many perpetrators out there, handsome, tall, muscular, um, presents as a normal, attractive guy that you would want to be around that you would want to hang out with. He doesn't, you know, come off as posing an immediate threat. So we approached each other at the party, got to talking. And then after a little while, he asked me if I'd like to come back to his house that was just a few blocks up the hill off of 1300 East. And uh, I said, yes. So we walked back up the hill and we got into the house and a bunch of his roommates were around. This is quite a large house. And as many folks know who live in Utah, um, around the university, those houses on 1300, they're not small houses and they can definitely house a decent amount of people if you divvy up the rooms. So I think there are about six or so people living in this one house. And we go down the stairs to the basement where his room is. And maybe I should have known. I don't know. It's so, it's so hard to say. You can't say you should have known because I'm contradicting myself here as I'm saying it, but I think like now hindsight is 2020 and there were a lot of warning signs that I didn't really pay attention to. But now of course, like saying like, Oh, we went on to the basement and his room was the size of a closet and actually was a big closet. That's was the original purpose of the room. So he was just living in a big closet. <laughs> so now that I'm saying that people are like, wow, Christina, you're real intelligent. But at the time, you know, you're like college, you got to do what you got to do. Um, you never know what 
sort of financial situation someone is in. So um, it didn't even have a real door. It was kind of like a sliding door, like a piece of wood on one of those slidey things at the top. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's where he lived. And I noticed um, that the bed was kind of a little bit away from the wall. The other problem with this room is there wasn't really anywhere to sit um, but the bed. So I sat on the bed and we started chit-chatting for a little bit. And um, then we did start to get physical and romantic with one another. Um, only a little bit. Like, we're only talking, like, kissing. And um, I want to spare your listeners the graphic details. Um, but long story short, I was pinned down, strangled, and raped by this individual in that closet of a room for what seemed like eternity, but only for a few hours in reality. And then I was able to leave and he drove me to my car and I went home and I took a shower right away. Obviously I was in a lot of shock and I hadn't really processed what had just happened. Um, and then I woke up the next day and started to go about my day doing my coursework and different things. It was a Sunday and he started to text me and it just got increasingly, increasingly aggressive to the point that it helped me to realize that everything that had happened between myself and this individual, aside from that contact at the very beginning was not consensual. And I think that is such a weird realization to come to. Um, and then it's just kind of like, where do I go from here? Like I've already been communicating with this individual and I kind of thought that there wasn't really anything to be done and that this person was, you know, a part of the circles that I was a part of. He was trying to be involved in Greek life. He, he was friends with my friends. How was I going to avoid this person? How was I going to cope with him being in my life? And I think that's why I engaged with him at all over text because I, you know, I was 20 at the time. Yes. 20. Um, and I, I just didn't, I just didn't know. I didn't know my resources. Um, so if I, if I could ask what, um, like you were raped and, yes. and the way you talk about it, it sounds like you didn't even really process that or realize that immediately. Is that help me understand? Um, well, so now coming from it, the advocacy perspective and knowing all that I was able to become educated about after the fact, um, there are three main neurological responses that happen to someone when they're in a traumatic, violent situation like sexual assault. Um, there's flight, fight, or freeze. And unfortunately for me, <laughs> I freeze. Um, and that's, that within itself is a really hard thing to accept. So I was still very like in that trauma fog. <laughs> 
Um, and I just didn't really understand why I froze. Um, I didn't know that that was a very realistic neurological possibility and that it was my brain's most base way of coping with the chaos I was experiencing. I mean, as I mentioned, I was strangled. I could not breathe. Um, so you're, everything starts to kind of shut down and you go to base instinct, base brain function only. Um, I feel very lucky to be alive and um, I'm sure we'll get to it later, but I definitely um, have had experiences with the family, friends and other loved ones of people who were not as lucky as I was to have made it out alive and to not suffer any, many more physical repercussions from that. I mean, strangulation is very dangerous. You can die from strangulation up to two weeks after the event. So <laughs> that's a little freaky. Um, so anyway, I was in a lot of denial just because that's the way. Because coping. Base, yes, that's basic brain function. Um, and because I had taken a shower, I thought that a rape kit wasn't a possibility for me. I thought I had destroyed all my chances and all my evidence by bathing, using the restroom, drinking, etc. But that is actually not true. Um, there has been recoverable DNA up to 11 days after an assault. Of course, you should try to go as soon after as possible and avoid compromising any of the DNA on your body, whether that's using the restroom, drinking, um, taking a shower. Those would be things to avoid if you can help it. But there is certainly hope if you have done those things. So I went and got a rape kit three days later, which within itself was a very intense and traumatic process that I'm still very grateful that I went through because I think it really opens up a lot of options for survivors. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm very pro-rape kit personally. Talk about the emotional strain, um, maybe like, like in the weeks and months and still now, but let's talk about the emotional strain. What, what did you go through? Oh my gosh. Um, I went through so much. I still go through it sometimes. Um, this, for my rapist is a real slime ball. He is slick. He's charming. He fools people. Um, so when I first came forward with my accusation, which was the day after, um, immediately he started harassing me, threatening me, threatening my friends. Um, and actually one of my sorority sisters, you know, he was saying, um, negative things about my character and about me to one of my sorority sisters over Snapchat because he thought that the messages would disappear. So she actually was receiving the Snapchat messages on her phone and then got someone else's phone or maybe an iPod or something, a different device and took pictures of the screen. So he wouldn't know that she had screenshotted because Snapchat notifies you if someone screenshots 
your uh, message. So that was very sly of her. And um, what an incredible uh, friendship that is. And she is just the best ever to do that for me. And then she actually went on to testify for me in my hearing, which we can get to in a moment. But yes, it was very emotionally distressing. I uh, 100% wanted to die in the days following. Um, it was just very shocking and kind of a whole um, paradigm shift and, you know, having to disclose that to my parents and the people closest to me that I chose to speak with about that. Um, I had a long journey to recovery ahead of me. And some might say that you're never recovered fully. Uh, and I, I kind of feel that way sometimes that I've done it so much work. I've put in a lot of time to try and heal from this and then something will happen. And I kind of feel like I'm back at the start and whether that's the case or not, I think it's not in all honesty, but it feels that way. And sometimes perception is reality. Uh, I did end up going through a process with the university under Title IX. I elected to not go through a criminal or civil proceeding at that time, um, mostly because I had no family in Utah. My dad had just been diagnosed with prostate cancer um, a couple days slash weeks prior to me being raped. And I just really didn't want to put my family through the strain and the in-depth investigation that um, police involvement would provide. So I have a case number and every time you get a rape kit, you get a case number. So I could open that up again if I wanted until May of 2021, but I probably won't. So no, no justice for this perpetrator. Oh yeah. We'll get to that. So we went through, <laughs> we went through the hearing process for for uh, those who are not for those who are listening, Christina and I are on a video chat right now. So that I was laughing at the body language, not at the subject matter. Sorry, sorry, Christina. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Yeah, he's a real creep. Um, so I went through a process under Title IX, which was an investigation led by the Office of Equal Opportunity and Affirmative Action at the University of Utah. Various schools have different, similar names for that. Um, they said it was going to take about 60 days. It took 90 days. Um, the finding was insufficient evidence there. So currently, and Secretary Betsy DeVos is trying to change these standards slash has already put into effect different policies that I probably couldn't disagree with more, but that's a topic for a different time. But at this time, the evidence, uh, the standard for evidence was Ponderance. Um, so it, it's like a 50 50 split. So they were saying um, insufficient evidence was 50 50 right down the middle. They couldn't tell who was telling the truth. Even if it was 49% to 51%, that 51% would win out. But unfortunately, they felt that they could not um, determine who was telling the truth. So either party in that case has the opportunity to appeal to a hearing. So I chose to appeal to a hearing, which was supposed to happen within three weeks of my initial finding. Uh, my initial finding was around 
10, 11, 12 of September. Um, my hearing was not until after Thanksgiving. So a lot of bureaucratic cogs moving as slowly as possible. <laughs> um, so I had this hearing and all along the way, there were just horrible bumps that if I, if I didn't want the process to take longer, I just kind of had to put up with. And I think that it's really crummy how survivors are treated in a lot of these instances. You know, I was tenacious. I called the Office of Equal Opportunity for updates on my case every week. I never quit emailing. I never quit calling if, because that's who I am. But that doesn't mean that other survivors should be expected to have that energy or should have to put that energy forth. Yeah, um, if you hadn't, if you hadn't called, would would anything have, have would have just kind of slipped through the cracks? I mean, it, what it, happened? What happens if you don't call? It would have happened, but I would have had no information to the timeline. Not that I did from calling, but I was determined to keep my case at the forefront of their mind. Because I was scared. I mean, this guy was still out there. He, he knew what I looked like, what, I, what car I drove, um, who my friends were. And he's willing to threaten you physically and sexually and um, over, over social media afterwards. So you don't know what he's capable of. Correct. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is a person who strangled me. Like, I don't, he's already been incredibly physically violent towards me. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, so I went through with the hearing process, which was very intense, sad day. Um, there was actually one of my peers from ASUU that was on my hearing committee because at a university, the hearing committee is made up of students, faculty, and staff. And so I said to uh, the Office of the General Counsel, which is another office of lawyers within the university um, that is responsible for these types of hearings and public image, other things, um, that I was an acquaintance of this individual and that they told me that if essentially if I didn't put up with that, that my hearing would be delayed further, maybe even into 2018. And I really didn't want to do that. This was long overdue, um, much longer than the deadlines that were indicated to me in the when, processes that were explained to me before I even signed up for this yeah. <laughs> to go through this process. This was way longer and I didn't want to extend it anymore. So I just dealt with it. But um, that was pretty humiliating on top of already feeling pretty humiliated. I had to uh, be in the room with my perpetrator. I had to talk about like the most horrible, one of the most horrible experiences of my life, my intimate body parts in front of my perpetrator and an individual that I knew in a more professional setting or as professional of a setting as you can have as a student. Um, he was like a coworker essentially. And then, uh, the next year I ended up working under him in ASU. So that was weird. Uh, the, the final hearing, uh, verdict came out a couple days before Christmas and they decided to uphold the finding of insufficient evidence. So my perpetrator was not punished at all. He was put on probation, which is from the university, which essentially means we're just keeping a close-ish eye on you. And if you do anything else, 
then you could be up for suspension or expulsion. Um, and that was for breaking a no contact agreement that was initiated by me through the university between the two of us. He broke it within three days of signing it. Um, so he was put on probation for that. But otherwise, nothing happened to him. He was able to uh, finish his education and he's out there living his life. Um, I know for a fact he is a repeat offender and we can get into that. I would like to share that aspect that is a newer development as of this year. Um, if you want to talk about that. Yeah. So how do you, I, I don't want to, I'm not sure I need to explore that much, but how do you know that he's a repeat offender? What, what, what happened? So this summer, uh, there's kind of a movement sweeping across Twitter where different uh, anonymous accounts were generating these lists of accused perpetrators by state or by university. And I found a Salt Lake City one um, and a University of Utah one. And my perpetrator's name was on the list and it had multiple accusers next to his name and my jaw dropped. I had not participated in the um, collection of this list of names. So that means that there were multiple other people that said he assaulted them and it wasn't me. So I reached out to this account and I said, hi, my perpetrator is on your list. Can you please reach out to the individuals that reported him to your list and let me know if anybody wants to talk? And one individual did. Um, I don't want to share too much about her or her experience, but it happened later in 20, the end of 2017. So after we had gone through this hearing process, after the university let him get away with rape, he raped again. So let's talk. That's, I just don't even know how to respond to that, but let's talk about, um, your advocacy because i met you probably about a year after that so so not not too long after that um and you were already uh heavily into advocacy against anti-rape anti-rape culture and um helping survivors which that's the part that just makes me so I guess proud of you. I mean that that's that's the wrong word. I don't know what to say. It's it's just so incredibly admirable. Talk about that. What what are you doing to recover yourself still? What are you doing for other people? Talk about this advocacy you've been doing since then. Sure. Um I think that's a great tie-in. Um so while I was still going through this hearing proceeding, I saw that it's on us. Uh, which is a national organization that was originally started by former Vice President Joe Biden, regardless of your political opinions on him, especially given the current election climate. Um, this was a really wonderful thing that he did while he was Vice President. He started the It's On Us initiative, which was essentially this idea that it's we all have a responsibility to stand up and prevent sexual assault, whether that's being an active bystander or a good support system, or um, a survivor that's willing to come forward and speak about their experience and kind of all these aspects of advocacy. So um, he started that program during 
the Obama administration, and it still exists today. It's on us as now its own um, singular nonprofit. And they open up different chapters across college campuses in the United States. So in the fall of 2017, It's On Us Utah was in its first year, and I was not in charge. I applied to be the survivor resource and ally captain while I was still going through my hearing process. Um, And uh, because I kind of realized that what I knew to be true about this individual, and I still believe this to be true, it's gonna take a while for everybody to realize that I was telling the truth from the get-go, that if you had listened to me, paid attention to me, found this person to be responsible for his conduct, maybe many other women would not have been sexually assaulted by him. But I realized that at that moment, it was not very helpful for me or healthy for me to perseverate about my own case because at that point it was out of my hands. So I needed a way to use this information, use the experiences that I had going through the hearing process, going through a sexual assault examination, uh, the rape itself, everything that I was feeling, all these lived experiences to help other survivors. So I got involved with this on us. They offered me that position. Um, And within six months, I was co-leading the group. And then by the fall of 2018, I was the president. And within four weeks of me, um, of the school year starting and, you know, collecting my uh, team and interviewing them, we were the highest performing It's On Us chapter in the United States for that year. Um, And I had an amazing time doing it. I really got to work with sexual assault survivors one-on-one, walk them to the resources that I trusted and knew would do right by them, sit down and explain things with them, cry with them, you know, just really be in it with them as someone who understands what they're going through as much as anybody could. Um, That was also while I was in my It's On Us presidency was the year that Lauren McCluskey was murdered. Uh, So that uh, really brought on the domestic and interpersonal violence aspect um, for the It's On Us Utah chapter and something that we brought to It's On Us as a national organization that that also needed to be part of their training. And then after I graduated, passed the torch on to one of my teammates um, it's on us, brought me out to New York in, um, what was it? July of 2019 to film a national commercial slash PSA, uh, sharing my story. So I did that and you can still find it online on the, it's on us, um, YouTube account, if it interests you yeah. and that Would got you help a us lot of attention. Help us understand. How do you, how do we find it's on us online? Uh, you can just go to YouTube, type in It's On Us. Um, the YouTube channel It's On Us should come up. You click on that. That's the national organization's YouTube. And then my uh, PSA has my name on it um, and a picture of me. Uh, 
probably looking quite sad <laughs> downtrodden is on there um and you can find it and watch it if that is um something you're interested in absolutely no pressure i get that this topic is heavy and not for everybody yeah um it was very well received nationally it was on ad weeks out of the day the day it was released well so it was it was big and you you don't know this christina yet i haven't shared this with you but i you put that ad on your social media or you put a link to your ad um back when it came out um so it's been a year and some now uh i watched that and that that part of that was the rudiments of me thinking about starting this podcast i I know people who have done and seen incredible things. And some of those incredible things are not positive, like, like, like this rape that you went through. Um, and some are, you know, some of my other people uh, we've, I've interviewed, you know, for those who have heard the program, I know some cool people and they're just regular everyday people, but they're doing incredible things. And so that's, that's one of the things that led me to, um, starting the podcast honestly and you and i like i said i haven't talked to you about it and and you've been on my list uh since then for somebody i wanted to approach about the podcast um simply because of the powerfulness of that message if you have not seen that psa you got to go do it got to go watch it it's on us on youtube look for christina bargelt um that's b-a-r-g-e-l-t um is that correct yes i don't know that my last name is on there um but it's Christina, you'll, you'll see it. Um, anyway, it's powerfully. I must want to look now, but anyway, well, that is so kind of you to say, Greg, I really appreciate that. Um, it was a really intense filming process, but I am so glad that I did it. I am too. And I think, I think, you know, I grew up in the eighties and that, and the eighties we know is a place and a time when people did things like that without repercussion, um, with impunity you can't get away with that and you can't get away with that anymore. And I think we're all responsible to make sure that, uh, that we're not part of the culture that allows that to continue and to perpetrate. Absolutely. And I think the important thing for me is that I, I found advocacy and that was a great, um, avenue for me to go down. I'm still, you know, kind of struggling with ways to do it outside of college like i mentioned the opportunities are not as abundant now that i'm post-grad um but i i i appreciate the power of being able to help others but also never giving up on myself and i i never will there will be a day i believe i hope where he will mess up he will get caught and myself and that other individual that i spoke about um, and I'm sure many others will be just waiting patiently for that day because it will come. Ready to testify. Absolutely. Well, that's awesome. I, I want to end maybe on a more positive note. Where are you at now? What, what, like you're with the Kappa, uh, is it Kappa Gamma? Yes, Kappa Kappa Gamma. I am volunteering for my sorority in two different aspects. I work with an individual chapter here in Colorado um as one of the main advisors and then i also work as a specialist higher up in the kappa hierarchy if you will um working with advisory boards so other advisors like myself 
in uh, Gamma District, which is Ohio and West Virginia. So I have nine boards of 18-ish, 16-ish women apiece um, that I work with, in addition to a district team of other specialists and a director and then a content director that's solely for advisory boards. So it's a lot of volunteer work, but I really enjoy that. Um, obviously, because of the pandemic, I'm not currently dancing professionally which is certainly an adjustment that's been really challenging, but that's okay. Um, I am teaching so much right now, which is great because that was actually a large aspect of my degree. I chose to perform a lot while I was getting my degree, but also pursue the teaching emphasis and studio teaching certificate degree track. So I'm really using those aspects of my degree um, I'm teaching. You said teaching. You're, you're talking. You're talking dance teaching. Yes, ballet teaching. Um, ages six to eighteen, I teach over twenty hours a week. I am on my feet all night long, um, but I love it. I absolutely live for those kids. They are my heart and soul. I love them. <laughs> are, are you one of those uh, friendly teachers? Or are you a little uh, um, demanding? Um. Well, I try. I'm never going to yell at them. I'm never going to demean them. I always treat my students with the respect and human dignity that they deserve. When physical corrections are allowed, I always incorporate consent into my classroom and the kids love it. Um, obviously, we're not doing physical corrections right now because of COVID guidelines. But uh, when we do, they always remind me if I forget. They're like, Miss Christina, you forgot to ask about physical corrections. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you are right. Thank you for reminding me. So they, they look forward to that. They want, I love instilling ideas of consent in them, but I always try and be very gentle and fair. Um, never talk down to them. My students are all incredibly talented and clever. Um, and they're going to succeed. We just have to work hard and I keep a diligent eye on them. I try to never miss a class so that they know that I am dependable and will be there for them. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that go into my teaching philosophy, but um, I always treat them with kindness and respect and meet them where they're at. And I will always show up for them in whether it's physically, emotionally, whatever the case may be. That's cool. So what is, what does Christina of the future look like? What's your, what are your hopes and dreams? What are your goals? Where, where do you want to be in five, 10, 80 years from now? I mean, tell us where you're headed. Well, I feel strongly and I hope that the professional dancing aspect of my career is not over. Um, I think hopefully the arts will recover and I'll still be waiting in the wings when they are. Um, because I would still very much like to dance for myself. But I do really enjoy teaching. So I think that I will continue with that. Um, I hope to continue to be involved in advocacy. Um, I just have to fight the right organization and fit for me now that I'm out of college. And I believe that I will. Um, I hope to get married and start a family, but we'll just see on that and one can never tell about those things so yeah that's not not a solo pursuit that's right so we'll <laughs> see how that goes for me but um i'm working on it and it's an ambition of mine um 
I plan on continuing to work for Kappa as long as they'll have me. I, I think that I just want to continue to um, seek to be the happiest and truest version of myself and um, continue to be kind and respectful to others along the way. Hopefully that's not too cheesy of an answer, but I think that's as general as I can get. Well, I think that's a, that's a good way to end the program. I think uh, I can't wait to see where you go. I mean, you're, you're like half my age and I look up to you and you're an amazing person. I, um, I, I don't want to apologize for what happened to you because I didn't cause it, but I do feel responsible to say that um, you're not alone. I'm with you. I'm behind you. I support you as are so many other people who may be fighting through similar circumstances. You're not alone. Find help. Uh, it's on us is a good resource. Do you other, are there other resources you would send people to? Absolutely. If you're in the state of Utah, the domestic violence uh, coalition is a great place to look. Um, Rape recovery center is another good one. Um, and they both have, you know, emergency lines. If you're, in immediate danger, you can call those lines 24-7, um, and they are bilingual lines as well. So if you speak Spanish or if that's your preferred language, they can help you with that as well. Um, it's on Us is a great resource if you're on campus. I also really want to plug the um, survivor victim advocates on the campus or advocates similar that on your respective campus. They are wonderful, wonderful gems kind of hidden within university settings and not a lot of people know about them, but at least at the University of Utah, they are confidential, wonderful people who genuinely have your best interests at heart and want to help you and want to listen to you and can get you different adjustments like extensions on your schoolwork and things as you work through this. There is light at the end of the tunnel. There is. And uh, if I could allow you, or if I could ask you to also mention some national uh, places, uh, resources they could go to. Um, because we're, we're nationwide. This is not a Utah podcast. This is nationwide or it's worldwide. Ooh. <laughs> five, five episodes in we're worldwide. World. <laughs> right. Um, where are some places where people can go uh, for resources um, nationally? The, Rape and Incest National Network, R-A-I-N-N, um, is a great online resource. They can connect you to a lot of different um, resources. There is a national suicide hotline as well, and I believe there is a domestic violence one as well. Um, help is out there. I know that there are also some Facebook groups. I'm certainly a part of some that are both for survivors and advocates, and you'll find some folks on Facebook um, that can help you as well. Um, yes, but I would say Rain is the probably the biggest one and the biggest website with the wealth of resources all kind of um, joined up in one spot. I, I would ultimately, something I have been pondering and actually started working on was finding a good uh, crisis line for each state. Um, after an experience I went through on one of those Facebook groups, 
Um, and just like having someone in immediate need of assistance in a different state and, you know, scrambling to find a um, crisis line in their area. So I think that's a little project for me on the side. <laughs> okay. Well, I can't wait to see what you do with it. Christina, um, thanks for appearing on the show. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for re-exploring some of the darkest moments of your life with us. Um, I don't think that there's a reason to do that between me and you personally, but I think that there's somebody out there who needs to hear what you've gone through. There's somebody out there who needs to identify themselves in your story. And I, I hope this reaches them. Um, and, and if it doesn't reach them, then I hope it reaches everyone else so that they know that there are resources when somebody near them has something happen. Um, Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for having me on. Um, to all those people listening, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you want to reach out to me for any reason and just like talk it out, I'm always happy to find me on Instagram at Ballet Barg, B A R G. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Yeah. And that is her Instagram. And you might find one or two photos that I took on that Instagram page if you scroll back a few years. Yes, we <laughs> but, need uh, to collaborate again soon. I might just move back to Utah. Uh. It's it's that simple. <laughs> it's that simple. Just come back. Just come back here. Um, yeah, we. I definitely want to uh, definitely shoot with you at some point again. But uh, until then, thanks, Christina. I have enjoyed this conversation in kind of a dark way. Um, it's not a very enjoyable topic, but I always enjoy speaking with you. And uh, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. There were some fun moments. <laughs> <laughs> there definitely were. Thanks, Christina. So that's Christina's story. I'm glad we could tell it. I'm so disheartened that these things happen in the world. I hope that we can all be part of the solution rather than the problem. I really appreciate her candor and her, her, I want to join her bandwagon. I want to hop on board and help other people as well. Hopefully this podcast has, has done that for someone or multiple people. Uh, and hopefully as we talk more about this, that we'll all start to recognize the warning signs and to report things when we see them and to uh, intervene when, when we can. So Christina, thanks for coming on the program. She's not here with me as I as I finalize these thoughts, but uh, I, I want to thank her again and tell her that uh, she's amazing. And yeah, I guess that's it. Thanks for listening to the, to the Photo Gregor podcast. I'm Greg Baird, and I appreciate you guys listening. <laughs>